My name's Ian Austin, and this is Friday Night Shudder. And it's a change of pace, because it's enough Thursday. I've had a cold all week, I feel terrible. And I decided, I don't, I'm enjoying Black Lake. I'm, sorry, my voice went weird there, but I really don't want to recap it tonight. That seems like a lot of work. And what doesn't seem like a lot of work, which does make any sense to anyone's not me, because it is a lot of work, would be to make up a movie. Which is what I'm going to do. I'm going to recap a movie that's never been made or probably ever be made. It's an idea I've had for a while. And I figure, no, you, why not use my master's degree in script writing to its full advantage and make up a movie for the podcast. That's what I'm going to do this week. Don't want to listen to it. That's fine. If you think I'm egotistical, that's fine. It's all good. I'm going to add a warning. I cannot guarantee. I don't believe anyone's come up with a movie like this before. I can't guarantee they have, so I'm not claiming, claiming complete ownership. As far as I'm aware and as far as I know, this isn't something I'm making up. But in case it's not, I apologise. I have no monetary distinction here or anything like that. I believe this is my idea, but it's in there. I'm sure someone might have come up with the idea in some way, shape, form that I'm not aware of. If they have, I apologise. I mean no disrespect. But anyway, it's time to go. This movie that's never been made and probably ever be made is called Once Upon Time on Brit Street. And I'm going to start recapping that one of movies that's never been made right now. Act one. So I think if I was going to make this movie, it's a horror movie, of course. I think it would start in 1977 in a theatre queue for the Sentinel movie Annie Hall. Because it's my idea, and I, well, as far as I'm aware, it's my idea, and I believe that it should start with Anne Hall, which is a great movie, I think we can all agree. But also, a slightly problematic movie given Woody Allen's history that we're learning later date. So, this movie starts with our main character, Jack Brick, or Jack Brick turned to his friends, who's queuing up with his best friend, and as I like to do, I like to have. Uh, male-female friendships in the scripts I write. Platonic friendship. So he's in cute with his best friend, and I'm going to give her name Becky Quo, because I like that name. Becky Quo and Jack Brickton are queuing up, and they're discussing Annie Hall and Woody Allen, because they're both fans of his early movies, of which I can't remember at the moment. It's not relevant. They're having discussion about Woody Allen, which is similar to the discussion in Annie Hall that Woody Allen has with the... um. Oh, the guy in queue about the philosopher, and they have this big discussion. And guy, yeah, you know, it's, it's similar to that discussion. It's very kind of sorking their dialogue, you know, read back and forth banter. It's sort of like that nonsense of, did you get a ticket? Yeah, I got a ticket. You sure you got a ticket? I'm sure I got a ticket. Can I see the ticket. Why didn't you see the ticket? I want to be sure you've got a ticket. That sort of thing. Read quick back and forth banter. That sort of banter makes a 20 page, uh, 200, uh, two hour script like. Or movie about three hundred pages, you know. So they're bantering, and I like to emphasize this point. Jack Britton's a very cut and dry guy. He's very much um that sort of idea of uh, Hollywood nerd. I think it's the wrong idea. He's he's a writer because you write what you know, and I know writers who can't get published because I am one. So he's wearing um I don't know frigging disco clothes because why not? Becky Quo's kind of that bohemian vibe, you know. Just. So laid back, Mother Earth, kind of nature free, I guess. And you're having discussion, which is kind of amusing because it's contrasting with what they're going to see. Because do you expect people we have movies wearing glasses and all that? So they're queuing up and they're discussing the movie. And we find out that Jack Britton's just got engaged because one said that early. A fancy, a fancy French restaurant. It's one thing I always love the idea of a couple getting engaged at a French restaurant. I find it's really cool idea, which admittedly is kind of ripped off from Spider-Man 3? Yes, yeah, Spider-Man 3. So they're in um, the queue, and they notice some teens causing ruckus up ahead. And these teens are like really sort of not hip, but very smug. They're in Star Wars and things like that, and they're causing ruckus. They talk about how we have an ancient and that Star Wars is future. And Jack Britton's getting very annoyed. But he's trying to make cars possible. 
and Becky grows complete opposite. She gets tired of these kids causing ruckus and decides to mock them by pointing out the ending, you know, creepiness of Star Wars by saying, you know, making joke that Luke and Leia are probably brother and sister. And these kids lose it. These teens, these three teenagers, very much like ones of Simpsons, um, just lose it. They're getting really angry. They're saying, no, that ain't true. That's impossible. They can't be brother and sister. And Jack's trying to mediate. He's trying to say, well, I might not necessarily be where George Lucas is going and go, but these kids aren't, teens aren't having it. They get in Becky Quo's face and they're like, you know what, you better stop saying that because, damn it, Luke and Leo are, are our one, OTP, our one true pairing. And Becky Quo's pushing them. And she's sort of like, how do you know? Like, they're not brother and sister. And teens like, it doesn't make sense. They flirt. Brother and sisters don't flirt. And Becky Quo's stuck. Mentions the concept of incest to them, and these teens are driven that wall. Luckily, a police officer walks by and breaks things up and tells them to move along. He then walks up to Jack and Becky and tells them maybe they're calm themselves because they don't know what they're pushing here. They don't want to mess with teens. Jack and Becky Weaver are from out of town. They're in a town called Folkestone, Folkestown even, and they've just moved there. They're best friends, they live together, they just moved there. Big thing, and he warns them off and tells them that they better not mess with teens because teens are the future and the future is now. Becky points out that that isn't really possible. How can future be now? Because if future is now, it's present. The cop tells Jackie better get Becky in line and then storms off. Becky furious says that she doesn't want to go and see Angle anymore and also points out logical fallacy of why Jackie's saying her when he's just got engaged. Jack. Says that it's fine. He he got female friends. He's a modern man. Modern man, nine seven seven. But he really just wants her to calm down because fighting doesn't solve anything. Becky tells him sometimes you need to fight what you believe in. At back down the street, the teens are watching and they're not happy. One of them pulls out a switchblade. No bad things going to ensue. In Sigma, Jack and Becky are watching movie, and we start noticing that Jack might not be quite as committed to his fiance as you think. He gets very into the movie, but he also starts realising that movies give him feelings he never thought he had before. Feelings towards Becky. Feelings that Becky reciprocates. The two of them start getting closer and closer, and then Jack picks up a tough popcorn. He puts it in his lap and gives Becky a look. Becky looks back at him and utters the immortal words, Fuck off, Jack. Jack says, maybe I'd like to fuck on. At which point Becky leaves the cinema because she's so disgusted by his awful line and Jack sits there alone. Jack is sat in the cinema on his own because there's very few people around. Despite the queue outside, very few people actually went in see movie and doesn't notice the teen sneaking up on him. They manage to get drop on, Fran- on Jack and drag him onto the stage. They assemble from in the cinema, the seven or eight people are also there, who are wearing glasses and a lot of airy smoke is going from their faces, which we're not sure how or why. They may may or may not be smoking weed. And they're all high. And because it's a Hollywood movie, this is causing them to trip out. And they think this is part of the movie. So Jack gets dragged on the stage and teens start stabbing him for the switchblade, throwing him amongst each other, and they start stabbing him. And he starts waddling around, screaming in agony, in a really dramatic way as they keep stabbing him. But the thing is, they're not deep cuts. They're, really, like, they're more slashes than stabs. And he starts wearing about. But it's horror movies, there's blood everywhere. So he starts stabbing about. He crawls through the screen and reaches up as if to ask Woody Allen for assistance. And then Woody Allen, like, it's like magic. It's one few times in the movie when he looks at the camera, but then the image freezes. And it's like he's staring at Jack, and Jack's reaching out, but Woody Allen's not going to reach down for him. So, Jack lies in poor of his own blood as Annie Hall continues, and the audience laughs. The teens scurry off as Becky Quo comes back in and sees Jack on the stage. She can handle her softcore drugs, so she runs up to the stage and grabs Jack and beds him, beds him not to die. He looks up at her. And says in a simple, simple chain form voice, 
Leak is a positively disgusting word, and then Jack falls into a deep coma. Jack is transferred to local hospital, the um Benedict, the um Benedictech hospital, where he's in a coma, and they keep him in coma. And Becky's told that he's going to die, unless he stays in coma indefinitely. Jack's fiance arrives, a woman named Vashon. She throws a ring at Jack and tells him, he just had to go see Annie Hall. Then she confronts Becky and says, Jack's all hers. Becky points out, no, we were never together. And Vashon slaps her and storms off. Vashon, by the way, is an inspiring model in Paris and flew back just to see Jack and get engaged and find out he'd probably cheat on hers or she can handle. So she says that she never wants to see either of them again and she leaves the movie for exactly an hour. She'll be back in an hour of the movie's time long after this because it's not going to Becky realises that Jack might never wake up so she kisses him on the forehead and says goodbye. She walks off. Two seconds off she walks off we find out Vashon, before she left, signed a document given her by a scientist named Dr. Cornelius Baxter. And the document he signed gave them permission to experiment on Frank by using a treatment called, um, that they believe they've come up with, called cryogenic freezing. They say that's something they tried using on Walt Disney but didn't work. So they put Jack in cryostasis. And while he's in cryostasis, they try and put on a tape that will push him to have happy feelings when he wakes up. They play the tape backwards and he hears nothing but anger and teen voices and promiscuous teen sets and drug use and stuff like that. So we flash forward to the present day, or 2017, 40 years, and Jack's doing cryogenesis, cryotube, whatever. And he's been downstairs 40 years. And he wakes up. He's been in basement because they discarded the program but still paid electricity for some reason. So he's in basement and Jack wakes up. And he finds himself in basement. And he gets out of tubing his Hawaiian shirt. And he's angry. He's got this darkness in his soul. And he somehow recovered from all his knife wounds because they, they're ice over, I guess. So he's staggering out downstairs. And he finds out that it's the year 2017 because the janitor, a nice chap named Ramil, says to him, it's 2017, bro. And they have chat and this guy's like, oh, 40 years have passed. You know, he somehow knows all of Jack's backstory. He explains to Jack that 40 years have passed and everything's changed. And he says everything's changed by pointing out that there's an Avengers movie coming out in 2018. Jack asks what the Avengers are and Ramul shows him a bunch of comic books from the 70s and says, they're like Star Wars, but, like, they have superpowers. And Jack's like, but but Star Wars made 1977. And Ramul goes, oh, you've seen nothing. So him and Jack explore Reddit and 4chan, and Jack starts getting very scared at what things have turned into. And also, in fact, it's 40 years later, and he hasn't aged today. But at the same time, he's really angry because there was crap going through his head. And he asks what happened to Becky Quo and Vachon. Well, Vachon married a water scuba instructor. And unfortunately, they're both eaten by sharks. Jack doesn't really care about that news. But he finds out that Becky Quo became a best-selling author. And she lives in London in a stately home that she re renovated a haberdashery, you know, and she calls it um, Becky Quo's Haberdashery Writing Institute for the modern writer. She lives there and she also works there. And Jack's like, oh, okay. And then he asks, what happened to Brit Street? And when Ramul says Brit Street, Jack question mark, Jack says, yeah, Brit Street, it's where I was living when this all happened, and also I have no money. So, so Ramul says, you know about Brit Street? Oh, it's changed. And, they f- and Jack finds out that Brit Street is now the pla- this area where all teens live in town. They're all horny, horny teenagers. Okay? Oh, the sons and daughters of the three teenagers from who attacked him. 
now own most of the town and it's not Folkestone anymore it's been, all the town's been called Brit Street but this particular part which is Upper Brit Street where all teenagers live and they're causing ruckus find out that three teenagers from the start movie Attack Jack who are literally named one, two and three per their rank and they've decided they've become richest people in town they bought the town and they turned it into a teen town and they deal in in promiscuity and like all underage teen stuff it's terrible it's really bad but they let the teens run amok and the rest of the town folk are scared to do anything these these guys who the teenagers who become one two and three best time of their life was teenagers so they're letting teens run wild and it's terrifying jack and townsfolk so jack says that he just wants to leave and then he's informed you can't Brit Street is divided from the rest of the country. When Jack asks, remind of what country it is, Ramul says, oh, could be England, could be America, who knows? So, act one's drawing to a close, and our cat Jack is starting to realise that he doesn't want to get involved with this. He just wants to leave, but he can't. And Ramul keeps saying to him, I wish someone would deal with teens in this town. And Jack keeps explaining he doesn't want to. He just wants to leave. And Ramul keeps saying, keeps saying it has to be Jack. And Jack's like, why? And Ramul's like, because they literally, that stuff you're listening to, it's meant to be happy Disney stuff. They changed it. What you have to listen to was the soundtracks from every horror movie ever made. Friday 13th, Hellraiser, Halloween, Nightmare Industry. They're coursing through your face. You're fueled by the rage of slashers. You need to kill teenagers. And Jack points out, that doesn't make any sense. Also, I was a writer once. And also, I don't write anymore. And also, I won't leave. And Ramul says, well, you can leave if you want to. You can leave your friends behind. But your friends don't dance. And if they don't dance, and they're no friends of mine. And Jack's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And Ramul says, well, you know, it's it's popular song. Safety dance. And Jack's like, no, I don't want safety dance. And he runs away. And then we cut scenes of Jack running through the town and try, realising he has no money and his clothes stink. And the F-Con treats him like a homeless beggar. He's racing through town. Then he finds a statue. And the statue is actually of him 30 years, 40 years earlier being stabbed relentlessly. So his last pose has reached up to the screen. He looks at the statue and then falls to his knees and sighs. He looks up at the sky and begs a sign, a sign of something to do. And then he looks across the street and he sees a Woody Allen impersonator. And he runs and says, I know you're not Woody Allen. And the guy says, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm from Boston. And I'm just, you know, I just look like Woody Allen. I'm not even real impersonator, I just look like him. That's not enough, you know. So Jack says, please, I need some advice. And the guy's like, leave me alone. So Jack begs him for advice and the guy grabs Jack by the throat, pushes him against the wall and says, you want some advice? Here's some advice. Be a man! And then walks off. And Jack realises that Woody Allen impersonator is not Woody Allen impersonator. Might have had a point. He needs to fight these teens. So he goes back and says to Ramul, I need to fight these teens. But how can I? Because they're also not teenagers anymore. And then we cut to scenes of the depravity of town from ruling the race, what happened over the 40 years in flashback. We get a few flashbacks. And Jack is, Jack is seeing this because Ramul is he's being such a clever, such a sense storyteller. Jack can see what's actually going on. So Ramul says to Jack, if not you, who will it be? Please, Jack, you're our only hope. And Jack hasn't seen Star Wars, so he takes it literally. And that's your impact one. At two. So Ramul has got Jack into his fight. And Jack suddenly realising that this town's a mess. He needs to kill off. He needs to kill off these, you know, revolting teenagers and counsellors and all that. And I had no teenagers. I said before, they're 16 or over, played by 30-year-old actors. Because, of course... So Jack is walking through the streets and seeing all his deprivation as Ramu takes him to his new house on Lower Brit Street, which is this horrible, but also largely popular part of town where non-teenagers live in squalor. Jack basically moves into 
a revolting cul-de-sac. Um, and he finds out that he's sharing this particular part with a woman named Miss Ferenberger. Miss Ferenberger. And she's 70 years old, uh, blinding one eye, and she used to be a kung fu master. Um, but now she just makes shoes and she can't, and she, but she can only make left shoes for the left feet. She offers Jack a shoe and he says he doesn't want one. And she gets very upset and storms off. Ramul says to Jack, they shouldn't push her because, you know, she literally, you know, will murder him in sleep. And also she makes really good left shoes. Jack points out he doesn't have two left feet. And Ramul points out, Actually, you do. And Jack takes off his shoes and realises one of his feet is a left foot. Realising the error of his ways, he finds Miss Ferrovera and apologises. She she says she's never been apologised to without murdering the person first and then bring them back to life. So she offers to make Jack a shoe. He fans her and she says that he she can train him. He asks for what? She says, murder all teenagers. And Jack put, looks at Ramul and says, Jacuz. Ramul assures Jack that Miss Ferrimera is someone to be trusted because she did this job in the 1930s. She's immortal, apparently. Ramul points out that Miss Ferrimera was the person who turned Brit Street into the nice place it was when Jack was there, and she did so by getting rid of all the old people. Jack points out it doesn't make any sense. Ramul says, well, occasionally you need to harvest, you need to curb the predominant population, especially if they're horrible. So he says no, he'll, they'll explore that story another time, or possibly another movie. But there's a current for the old people who used to run this town, like the old late Long John Silver. And Jack's like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Long, so Ramu says, it's not enough time, we'll get to it. No more pirates, trust me. The time for the mortals is over, he says. So Jack is being trained by Mrs. Furrenbera in the ancient art of samurai, which involves not a lot, to be honest. There's a lot of standing round. Um, she makes him wooden sword, and he tries, and he puts on her shoes and notes that it's actually a really nicely cobbled design. So while they're doing this, we see dynamics of town, and see one, two, and three, male one, even. He realises Jack's back, and he gets angry, as he thought they murdered him. And, they, you know, they assumed he was dead. One, two, and three, two and three start getting nervous because they think that Jack might have come back wrong. They remember what the Avengers was like and what happened when Captain America came back. One points out that's a comic book and they also point out, yeah, but like, he, he's not aged in the fucking day. We're looking at him on cameras now. We've got cameras everywhere. He hasn't aged today. And he's pissed off. And also, he's in private life. We're all 40 years older. You, two points out that one is former alcoholic, two has chronic lung disease, and three has that thing with the syphilis. Three is barely alive at this point. He's breathing into a resp- respirator, unrelated to syphilis, and he stops breathing into it and tells them they should nuke the city. So as they're, all, as they're arguing, we cut back to Jack being trained. His first job is to liberate the community centre. So Miss Ferenberra and Ramul say, Jack, this is a simple job. And because it's simple, we're going to give him something simple. So they give him a pump-action shotgun. Jack doesn't want it. When you ask what Jack wants, he says that the pen is mightier than the sword. So they give him a buyer in terms of fuck off. Jack, community centre where all teens are, walks in, and he's instantly intimidated. They're all pushing him about. All his 30-year-old men playing 16-year-olds, and 30-year-old women playing 16-year-olds. And he knows it's it's just disgusting. It's an NC-17. It's not Event Horizon, but there's so much sex everywhere. It's not even... It's not sexy. It's gratuitous. It's really horrifying. Jack walks in, sees it, and he's instantly sick. Oh, he's so sick everywhere. He's sick outside in an alley for like 25 seconds. And then he looks, says he can't do it. And he says that Woody Allen person there comes by. And he's like, for fuck's sake, you again? And Jack r- crawls through his own sick to Woody Allen person there to 
He's not Woody Allen impersonator. And begs him for assistance. This guy's like, for fuck's sake, mate, just sort your life out. And then when this guy, Jack says he can't, this guy's like, you know what, fine. And he hands Jack a stick of dynamite and says, and Lighter is like, why don't you just fuck off? Usually he's kill yourself, be over with. Jack realises that he can get out of actually killing anyone by accidentally lighting dynamite and just leaving it near the youth commute centre. So he does this. But unfortunately, we does factor in one of the youths has a very keen sense of smear. Her name is um, Jermaine. Her name's Jermaine. And she realises she's made dynamite. So she tries to get one leave, but they're too busy with what they're doing. She's reading a book. She gets really worked up to them. She's like, is this all we are? And they ignore her. She's like, fuck this, I'm out of here. But while she's doing it, she tries to drag a dog to safety, but the dog won't go. He, this, this Labrador won't leave. She tries to drag him away, but he won't hear her. So she's like, you stupid dog, and tries dragging him away. He refuses, so she walks off. Jack throws the dynamite at the um, at the commune centre through window. It smashes through window, and place explodes. But Jermaine's got away. Jermaine looks at it explode from one angle, and we get an arrow shot. She sees it explode from one side. Jack sees it explode from another, and Beeding turns to ash. Because why not? And they look at each other. Jack looks at her. She looks at Jack. And there's a familiarity there. Jack, realising his witness, runs off, sobbing. Jermaine squints. She knows who he is. She knows what's going on. And she's got to go and tell her grandmother about this. So from there, we cut away to um, Jack sobbing at Mrs. Fermain's. Not sobbing because of what he's did, but sobbing because he enjoyed it. And eventually starts laughing. And Miss Furman and Ramuel, they realise that Jack is becoming a legend. He's becoming the horror of Brit Street. Well, there's two Brit Streets. The team, the one, two, three find out what's going on. And they form meeting for the town council, which is them and their shared cat, Whiskers. Whiskers is slightly telepathic, sends a message that they're causing problems in town, they better sort it out, or she'll sort them out. When they ignore her, she's like, I'll fucking sort you out, and then put me out and get her above kibble. She's happily eating that, as one, two, and three realise they're off their ways, and that they put power of town in the hands of an evil cat. So at this point, we're approaching midpoint story, and Jack is cleaning up the town, and he's got a costume, he's got like a, a gimp, He's got a gimp mask, he's got um a mesh t- gimp mask, mesh tank top, he's got fucking shorts and sandals and two left sandals and he's um he's he's got um I can't even he's got a cravat, he's got like cravat around his neck, so he's, he looks like such a castle and he's he's carries for some reason he carries a, a fire axe because he, he says, as he quits it, I'm going to put this fire, I'm going to put the fire in the ass of crime. And townsfolk start getting into it. They're like, this horror Brit Street guy, he looks like a fucking sex offender, but man, that guy's cleaning up our town. He's getting rid of all teenagers. Some of the rightful mind people are sort of like, he's, he's literally murdering all of them. Sure, there's a better solution. And they're all told, no, there's not. He's the hero for Chang and Reddit. They're saying he's he's making Brit Street great again. All around planet, the president of America is saying he's he's glad Brit's a horror of Brit Street. That man's one of his. Prime Minister of UK is saying no, he's ours because they can't decide what jurisdiction Brit Street falls under. The um oh god the um. The newly crowned, long-forgotten King of Scotland points out that it doesn't make any sense for a town to be called Brit Street and is roundly ignored. So, um, the Jack is becoming unknown. We get a montage, greatest montage of all time, which basically loads of um, uh, evil 16-year-olds dying as in increasingly ridiculous ways as Jack starts getting into job. 
Um, we get uh, Mrs. Furbank and Ramriel teasing a relationship. We get Whiskers losing her shit and using her telepathic powers to blow Free's mind up from the inside. So his mind explodes. And then she says they better sort it or she'll sort them. And when two points out, she said that already. She puts two into a coma. Jermaine is... Um, Contacts her grandmother, which is, of course, Becky Quo, and realizes that Becky Quo is possibly the other member of council. No, it was not alluded to earlier, but suddenly, with three gone, she's now inherited his spot on council. <clears throat> she points out um, that they don't know what they're dealing with with Jack, he's an intellectual, and that to stop him, they need to think like him. So the four of them. Um, one, no, three of them, one Becky and Whiskers, all four of them, one Becky, Whiskers and Jermaine, go and see the latest We Are movie. Um, or not even We Are movie, it's a movie made by the impersonator, because they think he's We Are, because he makes his own movies, and one of his movies is called, um, oh no, Le Fire from Sharply the Fourth. Because it's about a man who's very sharp-like. And it's a premiere screening. They're trying to see it for ideas. And after the movie, after they all clap, because it's a very, very clever movie. It's a great ending with um a bunch of Tom Flory. After the movie, they talk to Wayne Personator. No Wayne Personator. His real name is Jeff. And they ask him for advice. He's like, why do you people leave me alone? But then they discovered that he gave the dynamite to Jack and asked him why. He was like, I just want to be left alone to make movies and not be called Woody Allen. Because I'm not Woody Allen. I'm fucking Jeff. Call me Jeff. And they get worked up with him because he's getting worked up. But then Becky Quo sorts the situation out by pointing out to them that they've got everything they need from this man. Woody Allen's inspired them again. It's like, can't you give me credit? I'm Jeff. I'm fucking Jeff. And Becky says, they walk off, and Becky turns to Jeff and says, it's okay, I'm a spy. And Jeff is like, I'm happy. He swats off. We discover that Becky all along has been a spy, and that her mission in 1977 was take down Vachon. But then she fell in love with Jack. And then Vachon left, and Jack was almost murdered. And find out that Becky started Bengatech Industries, because her real name is Becky Bengatech. Why not? And she set up. But then something went wrong. A long time ago. And she um, she decided that teenagers were infected in town. And the only way to stop it. Because her government wouldn't stop it. And she refuses to say which one they were. Was to have all the teens murdered. But she had to wait to the right time. And she reveals this by going straight to Jack and telling him everything. And then pointing out that she, that Ramil and Miss Furman are literally members of her organisation. In fact, they both agree with. Jack, at this point, has no idea what's going on. He says he didn't sign up for any of this. He's not a spy. He's not a government agent. And he's not murdering. He points out that his outfit is fucking ridiculous and also incredibly impractical for what I'm trying to do. My midriff is literally exposed. I'm wearing a gimp mask. I have sandals on and wearing fucking shorts and I'm carrying fire axe. None of this makes any sense and he just leaves crying. They go up, they plan to go after him, but Beck says they can't. He needs to come back on his own. They need to get to work. So Becky realizes after a week Jack isn't coming back. He's literally drinking himself to death in the park. She begs Jack to assist him, but he won't. So Becky says, fuck it, we have to. So Becky, Miss Furburn and um, Ramul go to um, the town hall. They're going to deal with one, Jermaine and Whiskers. Where Miss Furburn um, cuts off one's leg, right leg, clean cut, and then looks in horror as leg reforms into a lizard leg. And one reveals that he is actually... Was so evil and so promiscuous and took so many drugs as a teenager that he's literally now part snake. And then he spits venom at Ramul. But then we get a twist. Ramul shrugs it off and then laughs and says, 
No, you don't understand. We're playing you for fools. He feels that he's working for the council. At this point, Whiskers uses her mind to look inside Miss Fairburn's and realises secret to her immortality. She eats a lot of baked beans. So he makes her allergic to baked beans and Miss Fairburn falls to his knees and realises that she needs baked beans in the next five minutes or she's going to die. So she crawls away but doesn't get very far as Jermaine throws a bag of cats onto Mrs. Furburn and the cats eat her. Ramil points out that doesn't make any sense and Jermaine says, no, it's okay, these are special cats. And that's last it's mentioned. And then cats get back into the bag happily. Becky Quoth is forced to her knees. She asks Jermaine why, and Jermaine says, because you're a terrible author. And they knock out Becky Quoth, and they plan to take her to City Hall. Because they're going to conduct a ritual to always have power over the town. Jack realises you're of his ways when he runs into Jeff. And Jeff is like, will you just leave me the fuck alone? And... Finally, Jack delivers the greatest monologue about Woody Allen movies you've ever heard. And as Jeff is listening to it, a tear rolls down his cheek and says, I'm so sorry, I never knew. And realises that he should have been found Woody Allen all along. Which is prefaced by two of them pointing out that this doesn't mean they're endorsing what Woody Allen did because he, what he's accused of is very creepy and it's not being diminished. But he makes good movies. They keep making the point that they're not trying to downplay the accusations against Woody Allen. They're not trying to downplay it. They take it very seriously. But he makes good movies. And they're fighting over it. And they're arguing. They're realising that it's a very uncomfortable situation. They're to talk about how much they enjoy Woody Allen movies. When he's a really, possibly, maybe, a creepy human being. And that goes on five minutes. Five minutes screen time is just talking about how... Just because someone at Alan Hall doesn't mean you can ignore the accusations against them. But at the same time, you can't ignore Alan Hall's good movie. And they go round round in circles. And eventually Jack agrees that he likes the movies, but Woody Allen, as a person, might not be someone to look up to. And they agree. And Jeff says, fine, let's go blow up this fucking town. But first, let's get the townspeople on our side. And they hold a fucking, <laughs> they hold a press conference in the park, in Lower Brit Street, the scummy park, and everyone there turns out. And the press conference is just about, <laughs> it's five more minutes <laughs> of these two complete idiots talking about how We Allen movies have inspired them to rise up against all these teenagers. But at the same time, they're, they're maintaining that they do not want to diminish what Woody Allen may or may not have done. They understand the accusations. <laughs> the townsfolk are asking questions about how, whether they can enjoy watching Woody Allen movies. If someone back say, someone back shouts out, Woody Allen ain't shit, he ain't made a good movie for 25 years. And Jack points out, why be dead since... Why be in fucking coma since 1977? So if me, you will always be that man who made fucking... Who made Annie Hall. And see keeps going on. And at one point, someone bats like, for fuck's sake, look, we got a movie going on here. we got to get into the final act. Can we just go march on Upper Brit Street already? And they say, fine. And while they're doing that, the council, what's left of them... It's like the only way wing is to launch an attack on Lower Brit Street. So the armies of the teenagers led by one Whiskers, Ramul and Jermaine with a mind-controlled Peggy Quill up front march on Lower Brit Street as the Lower Brit Street slugs are marching on Upper Brit Street and a war is going to begin like which never been seen as pundits outside on news say this is the equivalent of the Battle of Eternal Fields from Return of the King. No hype ball. And that's the third act. The biggest battle you've ever seen is about to start. 
Once Upon a Time Brit Street at two ends at Freeze Gun. I'll be just a second. <laughs> so at three starts in <laughs> at three starts in the year two zero four seven. Thirty years later, Becky Quo is somehow still alive. She's reading a fucking book to her I to not even like I don't even know what the age of the person like I don't know what relation she's a great aunt or something stupid like that. But she's reading a book to her someone she's a little kid she's related to about what happened that day. The little kid's asking, and Becky's like, I'll explain. Here's what happened. The little kid won't shut up. So she keeps saying, look, we stole this idea from the Princess Bride, and you'll make it worse. You're a terrible actor. Screw it. Get back to the past. So we skip that bit because it's not working. We go back in time to 2017, where shit's getting real, where fights about begin. In, in the park that's neutral park in Brit Street the middle ground and the fight starts and it's brutal there's it's just gratuitous literally there's blood everywhere there's gore people are exploding a, a, a middle-aged guy gets punched by a teenager and he explodes into pretty much blood and ash a teenager gets pushed a little and flies back 50 feet against the wall and explodes. It's that sort of fight. It's just people literally being ripped apart. The bloodiest thing you've ever seen. Blood everywhere. It's toenails everywhere. A toenail's used as a weapon. It's ripped off someone's foot. As they scream, it's sliced across their throat. The arterial spray hits everywhere. It's bursting everywhere. It's, it's NC-17. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. In Milvick, Jack is walking through, dressed in the same clothes he wore in the 70s, and he's got, not an axe now, he's got a pen, and he's just stabbing everyone he can find. Stab, 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 stab. He, in a one shot, which lasts three minutes, he's cut for a swath of people using pen, and as they die, grabbing their pens and using their pens, because every time he uses pen, he needs to grab a new one. But he's so fluid... So then we get Becky Quo manages to break and brainwashing, runs at Whiskers. As he does so, Whiskers telepathically creates a ball inside the head of one and turns him into a living bomb, throws him at um, Becky Quo. But just for impact, Ramil breaks the breaks the moment to reveal that he's a double spy and gets hit by the explosion but he contains it somehow so one dies and Ramul gets mortally wounded then he looks at Whiskers and says he hates fucking cats Whiskers furious demands the cats to arrive and they all pop out the bag and they run for Jack and Becky Quo Jack drops the pen looks deep in himself and grabs a machete discarded uh, not even machete, a fire axe, and says, you know what? I ask myself a question, and I ask myself an explanation. And then he starts massacring the cat monsters. And says, he screams at them getting their bag, they won't. So he's murdering all of them, and this is just revolting at this point. There's literally blood everywhere on the screen. Jack's mowing down everyone, and then he looks. And what does he see? He sees that they've run out bad guys, everyone's dead. So he looks at the frame and he stops and he says, what are we fighting for? And everyone stops and he says, we are not fighting for a reason. We're fighting just to fight. We deserve better than this. Why, when I watched Annie Hall and Jeff takes that moment to stab him in the spine with a harpoon and Jack screams in pain and Jeff says, I was always a Star Wars guy and rips a harpoon out. He looks at F1 and says, now's the time, the time of Jeff. <laughs> then we cut back, we go back to the future in 247. As the little kid says, well, that doesn't make any sense. And Becky Quo's getting really upset at this point. She's sort of like, look, you know I survived. Can't you just leave it that? And kid's being really smug and talking about how stories are stupid and it doesn't hold up. 
and it's, you know, too diverse for its own good. Becky Quaid gets refed up, slams the book shut, and says, kid go to bed. The kid goes to bed, and Becky Quaid looks at a picture of Jack on war in his heyday and says, I miss you, Jack. Him cut back to the past as Jack rips Harpoon out of his chest. He's bleeding, he's covered in blood, and Jeff starts stabbing him again. He gets exactly the same stab wounds as Nick before. So he's clutching, he falls back, he looks at Jeff, raises his hand, and Jeff uses Harpoon to stab Jack in the hand. Jack falls down, he's screaming. And Jeff says, I hate we are movies, and I hate you. I hate you all. I hate Independent Simba. I want to see fucking Avengers. It's bullshit. I don't want to look like Woody Allen. I want it to look like Mark Ruffalo or Chris Evans. But look at me now, Ma. Look at me now. As his mum's in back waving, going, you fucking damn, Jeff. Jeff says he's sick of teens, he's sick of old people, he's sick of everyone except Jeff. So Jeff's in this town, come join Jeff, because Jeff is where it's at. The Jeffs look at him and go, we won't join you. As Jeff gets furious and says they better join him, because he's got one more stick of dynamite, and he's put it right in his very soul. And everyone realises, Jeff's turned himself into a bomb. Jeff is going to explode the town unless they hit Heater's demands, which is no more fucking Woody Allen movies. He wants a Sigma in every corner. He wants a blockbuster on TVF night. He wants the stars to live here. He wants Brit Street to become new Hollywood. As he's saying this, Becky Quo sneaks up behind him. She looks at Jack. Jack looks at her. And Jack realises what she's saying. Becky Quo holds up the most dangerous item in existence. A copy of Woody Allen's Match Point. The DVD. <laughs> As Jeff realises that he's won, Becky sneaks up behind him. She's got DVD. She sneaks up, continues sneaking up. Jack distracts Jeff by pointing out movies, saved him, and Jack's, Jeff's like, you're literally dying for the second time because you're injured watches too many movies. Becky sneaks up behind Jeff. She's about slash the DVD across the back of his throat. Jeff ducks and she goes flying. Jeff says, oh, you can't fool me. I've seen too many movies. And Jeff and Jack and uh, Beckway look up, up to him and go, you ain't seen enough movies, bitch. And Jeff stops and looks and sees Miss Ferber's there. She's emerged bit by bit from the cats. She stands up. She looks at him and she's furious. Absolutely furious, and she he sees her. And they realize they're both immortals. They're the only two mortals left from the nineteen thirties. Jeff goes, "No, not you. You died." And Miss Fairburn goes, "I didn't die. I just came back." And they fight, and the mortal minds can't take in how they're fighting because it's otherworldly. They see two. All they can make out is bright lights as these two beings fight and Miss Ferbo wins and she wins by knocking apparently knocking Jeff out and then she turns to everyone and says I'm going to throw him into a volcano and she does because there's a volcano in town then Miss Ferbo comes back and says I understand what you're going through but you need to live together which no one questions despite the fact that she asked Jeff Jack murder all teens. She points out she only asked that because she needed to draw Jeff out. Bequo asks why she didn't just murder Jeff at the start of the movie when he's clearly in public at all times. Miss Furbo's no answer. She just walks away. And then turns back and goes, Now, forget. Neff one forgets. Jack and Becky Quo, despite the fact that there's a massive age difference now, they get together. It's beautiful. It's a lovely ending. But then we cut 40 years later. And that little kid. Who back quotes turn sharp. It's Jack. He's devolved. He's aging backwards. He goes to sleep. And doesn't remember any of their history together. Beckwo tucks him in. Looks at him sadly and goes. You're too young to watch more movies. <laughs> As he goes to sleep, he says that he looks forward to watching Star Wars, the new Star Wars tomorrow. Beckwo 
walks over to a picture of Jack. She sits by it, holds it up and cries. Because she's old as fuck. And he's turned into a little boy. He's turned into a little boy. And the movie ends with her crying. That was once one time in Brick Street. Now it's time for the end is epilogue again. Woo, the, the end is epilogue time. That was certainly a um that's certainly an idea I had. I just want preface that you know, especially the stuff I was coming out with, that stuff that was it's it's technically a horror movie, but also not really. I won't add that. I mean, no disrespect to Woody Allen. Um, I know that there's a lot of accusations about him, which I'm not going to comment on. But obviously, this would never be made because no one would ever sign off on it. Um, but I had a fucking blast recording that. That was really fun. I got to test my script writing muscles. Um, I got to create a completely ridiculous movie that will never be made for so many reasons. Um, yeah, that's fun. I mean, I who, where is you going to use um a cop DVD copy of Match Points of Red Herring? You know, um, yeah, it's not quite movie I had in mind when I started doing this, but it was definitely an experience and hope you enjoyed it. I just want to add that as I end, I realised this can never be made into a movie, but that's half fun, right? And hey, it's a different form of recap. And in the end, it was a lot more fun than the idea I had. But anyway, we'll be back to black. I'll be back black late next week. Got new Blackest Night review issue coming next week. Too and who knows more of this may follow. But for now, this is Ian Austin saying, "Remember, you can make it up. Pretty sure shit can't keep consistent genre tone." So again, apologies to anyone took offence. Sorry to Woody Allen if you listen to this and you think I'm doing shit. I again make no disrespect. You know, your move, Annie Hall masterpiece. And anyway, till next time, remember life is beautiful.